Our show is brought to you by uh, our friends at Tech GC. Um, it's the best. Great community of GCs. For info on how to join, look below. All right, man. Well, we got Sivan Whiteley from Square. Uh, Block is the parent company. Uh, we we love having like people who are leading legal at uh, companies that are democratizing things, and this is yet another example of that. And she's just an amazing leader that's been there almost ten years. So this was a really really uh, interesting conversation with Sivan for sure. I really liked hearing from her. Um, she's uh you know she's been at this a long time, but she has like a a useful intellect about things. And what I mean by that is like our creativity is still sky high, right? Like, you know how, like if you do something a long time, you sort of become dogmatic. I just don't get that sense from her at all. Um, part of the reason is probably because she's working at a company that is in a constant state of change. And I think for the, for the good, it's one of these companies that I really like um, because they built a business from scratch in a space that nobody believed they could against really entrenched incumbents and then once they became successful they didn't get lazy they just started creating more and cool cooler shit so i'm a big fan of her and of the company she's at and, and the conversation was emblematic of 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 that same here and we've we've you know when you have a company that's founded by somebody with existing notoriety you know that can come with challenges and that can come with like benefits and drawbacks and uh, I think it's it's like the culture starts top down and the public presence of Jack Dorsey and others, you know, and, and also us, you know, kind of knowing a few people at Twitter and knowing that uh, some stories and background where, you know, he takes the time to like ask people how they're doing and walk around and cares about his people that work for them and has fostered a relationship with his legal team in certain ways like I think that's a really nice cultural benefit. And we touch on that with her too. Yep. Yep. I'm a, I, it was a great combo, man. It, and I think like, if you're going to listen to one of our episodes, this is a pretty solid one. I had a question kind of just generally about the kick, the sort of start, start ish point of, of your journey. And you went from being a litigator, which we've actually talked to a bunch of people that, that really successfully transitioned from litigation into commercial or product focused roles. Yeah. But I'm always impressed when that happens or like want a little bit of the origin story of how that happened, because somebody has to believe in you in some way to do that. So could you maybe let's kick it off there? Cause that's, that's always an interesting transition point. Sure. So um, yeah, I started off as a litigator. I, I just liked kind of building arguments. I thought it was fun. Um, and so I didn't, hadn't given that much thought when I you know, got out of law school. I had debt to pay off. So I wanted to go to a big firm, save money, pay off those loans. Um, and I didn't really know what it meant to be a litigator at a law firm, at a big law firm. And it turns out, like, you know, there's some really great parts, but it's a lot of fighting with people, like fighting over the, in my opinion, the dumbest stuff, like, you know, I, you, you sent over these documents and we requested this and we didn't get, you know, this other stuff. And um, so I, after like, you know, several years, I was like, okay, I don't think I want to do this for the rest of my life. I want to help build something. And um, 
And and that meant going in-house is what I concluded. And I didn't want to just go in-house and do litigation um, because I, I, I was done with sort of the adversarial nature of the work. Um, and so I was looking at like product and commercial roles. And uh, I, I didn't feel qualified, to be honest. Like I was like, how am I going to get a job? I've never done this. And I, I just kind of, when I looked at like the experiences I had, I was like, okay, I have to take these little nuggets of things that are probably transferable and, and really lean into those. So I was like, okay, I've drafted contracts. There were settlement agreements, but it's still a contract. And I've litigated contracts. So I know what happens when you write, you know, an ambiguous or crappy contract. Um, and I just used that to kind of sell my ability. <laughs> and I had Mark Rogers at eBay who took a chance on me. He was just like, yeah, yeah, I, I see it. I think you'll be good. And I came in and I was not that good. Like he trained me. He mentored me. I would come in to like negotiate a contract guns blazing, like ready to annihilate the other side. And then I realized, wow, that doesn't work it's very well. It's like it's approach. much better. <laughs> yeah, totally. So he kind of, he took this rough around the edges lawyer and um, taught me really important skills, just life skills, not just even negotiating deals. Um, and, and I applied them, you know, working with engineering teams too. Like you have to be a really good listener you have to let people make their points and have their moments and then, you know, add value. And um, and so that's how I made the transition in-house. And then once I was in-house, I, I realized I wanted to do as much as I could, just get as much experience as I could in all the different areas. Um, and so that's what I've been doing, literally, you know, my whole career. Isn't it great to have mentors like that? that so huge. That- that do that. And so I'm imagining you, you paid that forward as well afterwards. Absolutely. Like I, I mean, I try it's, uh, it's, it's my, you know, number one goal is to create a team of leaders that are way smarter and way better than I am. Um, and, and learn from them and just share my lessons that I've learned through my own mistakes or, you know, experiences and, and try to help them avoid some pitfalls. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's the most rewarding part of the job. So I think this is a good question for both of you. And so, Pedro, like interested in your take, too, because both of you and, and myself, too, on a smaller scale are, are managing leaders, which is actually different than early on in your career when like, oh, let me just get the team going, get some help <laughs> on the team. Now you're like you're managing the manager. So, Pedro, maybe let's start with the, you know, you've done this a couple times. How, how do you approach that? And then we'll Savan, let hear from you too. Um, I think the first and most important piece is either inherit really good leaders or go hire some, right? Like if, if you're going to become a people, a people leader manager, right? So a manager of people who manage other folks, um, you become a vision person. Like you're setting vision. You're not setting tactics or operations as much, right? And so you need folks that can take a sort of opaque vision and like, uh, like maybe not as specific or directive goals and have them interpret those into something that is operationalizable, right? And doable. Um, and that's really hard because when you're, at least for me, when I was starting off as a people leader and, and then kind of graduating to manager people leader, um, it's hard to trust people when you're the one who's been used to doing all the things, right? And it's not that you're distrustful. It's that like you have this very kind of rigid view of how you want things done. 
And you just can't run a larger organization that way. You have to have an opaque view of how you want things done and then let people fill in the details as they see fit. And you embrace it versus say, no, calibrate that. I want it this specific way. Um, and so that's the hardest part for me. It was the hardest part for me. Once I embraced it, I realized that things actually worked out much better than I thought. And not only that, if you allow your managers that report to you to be creative in how they implement your vision and goals, they're smart. They come up with cool things you would have never thought of. So for me, it's been really rewarding in that way. But it was definitely hard early stages because I had sort of like a sense of like, like a directive linear mindset of like how I wanted things done. And I had to loosen that up a bit. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think I'm still struggling with not being a doer on everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you said, Pedro, it's impossible. There's just too many things that need to get done. Um, I, I think, you know, I had one of um, my former colleagues um, who's now an executive at another company and she <laughs> reached out and was like, you know, um, you had this conversation with me about taking accountability for mistakes. Um, And she remembered this very specific story of where, you know, I called her out on like, hey, you know, this could have gone much better if you just said, yes, we made a mistake. Here's the mistake. Here's how we're fixing it. And here's how we make sure it doesn't happen again. Um, And she said that she had gotten really defensive and, um, and learned that lesson just through like, you know, we were working on something together. It wasn't, it, it wasn't like I was mentoring in the sense that I was in a mentor state of mind. Um, and she said that, you know, she had this moment with her current company where the CEO was like, hey, you know, the way you handled this by taking ownership of a mistake um, was exceptional leadership. And like, so it's kind of just sharing these lessons. Um, and and I've learned that one over and over again myself where, you know, like we, we all screw up or things go sideways and it there are actually opportunities to really build a lot of trust. Um, and so I feel like that's, there's sort of these little lessons that we can impart to our team members that make huge, a huge difference for them in their careers, wherever they land um, ultimately, um, and also change the way that the organization functions and an organization that um, gives room for mis- just making mistakes and screwing up um, and learning from the mistakes is is a, a really strong organization. And I mean, my my boss, uh, I think like early on, he told me and he's like, you know, I don't think you're making enough mistakes. And I'm like, what in the hell? Like, what kind of advice is that? You want me to make mistakes? Do you know what my job is? Like, we don't want mistakes with my job. Um, and what he meant is like, you know, you have to take some risks. Um, and with that mean, it, you know, some of them don't pan out. Um, but without that ability to put yourself out there, you're not um, you're not kind of pushing yourself and the, and the team and the company to its full potential. I think your reaction from the legal department side of things to you're not making enough mistakes is reflexively the right one for a lawyer, right? Like, I mean, this is how we've been told to like conduct our business and engage in our profession. But like, do you have an an idea? I'm asking both of you since you're both general counsels, like what are some ways that legal departments can like push the envelope? Because you don't see a lot of legal department envelope pushing around corporate, uh, you know, circles. So like, what are some ways that if you had to advise a GC who's at looking to innovate things that legal departments can push the envelope on innovation and make changes and, and, and do some trial and error? I, I have some thoughts, but Andy, did you want to go first? No, you, you, after you, I'll go after you. So, um, so, uh, first of all, 
my team is um, more than just legal. So like, you know, I have like the rebrand of our company from square to block was like in my team's responsibility. So like there's plenty of room for um, different kind of creative um, challenges. But just in legal, if I think about, um, you know, some some areas where I felt like really excited by the things we were doing, um, one of, you know, Square processes payments for small businesses. And the law changed on CBD versus THC with marijuana. Um, but processors were, you know, finding it really challenging to process for CBD because the networks and the banks were very skittish about it, even though it's you know, can't get you high. It's just, you know, it has below 0.03% THC in it. Um, but nobody had really cracked that nut. And and that was something, you know, legal and compliance, like we looked at and we're like, okay, here's like, let's figure out how to make it work. And what kind of diligence do we need to do on, on our sellers so that we can help this huge population of small businesses that like they were sending freaking cash in the mail to get shipments out. Like this is dangerous and stupid. Um, and so, you know, you're kind of building from scratch and that does generally like the first thing you come up with is not the final state. And there's a lot of iteration um, and a lot of setbacks. Like you think you've got a good due diligence program, you take it over to, you know, Visa and MasterCard and they're like, no. Um, and so I think like that's one area where um, where you're pushing to provide services to a group that's underserved. Um, there's often like there's no clear way to do it and you're figuring it out for the first time. Um, another thing like we, you know, we looked at in the crypto space, um, there was there were a lot of people, not a lot, actually a small handful of, of people and organizations that were patenting a whole bunch of um foundational technology and we're like this is really scary because you know it, patents are often used you know to stifle innovation and with such an early technology like you want freedom to execute and so i you know we had foundational patents in crypto and you know we we developed this um crypto open patent alliance um where you know we said we're going to take these patents and we're going to say not only are we not going to assert them, but anyone who joins this group can use the other patents defensively if they need to. So you're creating kind of like a, a, a shield and a sword if needed. Um, but, you know, did that go over super well initially with some of the other execs? They're like, OK, so we're investing all this money in, your, in developing a patent portfolio and you're basically saying, like, don't use it. Um, and so it took a few iterations. Um, and then, you know, when we got out into the into the world and tried to get other companies like Facebook to join, you know, they had different issues with the way we'd set it up. And so, you you know, you change it. Nothing is set in stone. There's very few things that you can't sort of iterate on and fix as you go. Um, but you, you kind of have to just throw yourself out there. If you see something that you think needs correcting, like put out a solution get some feedback and, and fix it along the way. I think those are great examples. And I think where that mindset comes from, at least at least in my experience, has been the time that I kind of served as product counsel. And it's interesting that you came up that way too. Like when I was at TD Ameritrade, the idea of product counsel didn't even exist. But what I was doing was the innovation team was my client. So I was that we bought this company, they ended up taking over the platform. I just ended up spending time with them and I ended up being their lawyer 
And that ended up being like some commercial work, but it also ended up being like, talk us through this thing and how we're going to build it and this, these, the marketing around it and what we're going to do. And it just comes from product counseling. So that, that role serving in that role, Pedro, to answer your, your sort of your like related question, Mm -hmm. I think that breeds the idea that you're providing value. You're not just like a checkbox on the requirements page and like did legal sign off like that's bullshit we we can't just do that and so he puts you in that that product counseling role puts you in that position of needing to add value because like otherwise you're not going to get the call you're not going to be invited to the meeting you're not going to be in the room and so we've discussed this pedro with so many guests like that that piece of the puzzle of being an in-house lawyer of adding value it comes in all these different forms but you have to do it and so I think part of that puzzle, especially early stage as you're growing, is to show, to, to justify that you're not a cost center, you're adding value, legal contributes to revenue, it contributes to optics, it contributes to like the company's growth mechanism uh, in, in really significant ways. And the examples you just gave, Sivan, are perfect ones. We could go on with many others. But I think I think that's really where I think the rubber meets the road when you start digging in with what the teams are building. What's a, 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 this is a, these are interesting responses. I, I was um, thinking about it through the lens of a growing legal department, right? And so, like, if you have a small, agile team, what you guys are saying is pretty easy to do. Not easy is not the right word, but it's easy to implement, right? Like, it's simple to implement. You allow everyone to be creative. You allow everyone to do, like, individualized or tailored problem solving and come up with creative solutions. When you have a legal department of a thousand, I feel like that's much harder to do because you're under different pressures. Like on the product counseling side, to stick with that example, you're under the pressure to give consistent product counseling advice across products, right? But the teams of lawyers that support the products might not ever really communicate or just not be in a situation where they need to overlap. So that's where things like standard options come in and playbooks and all the shit that we all know from legal departments. So you fall then under the tyranny of standardization, right? So one more follow-up question is, how do you fight the tyranny of standardization? And here's why I'm asking, because that attracts a certain type of candidate recruit lawyer, which is the pedantic type, which will just look to a playbook, interpret it, look at some language on a contract, interpret it, and then connect dots. That's my least favorite type of lawyer, however, and definitely the least creative type, but there are millions of them. How do we guard against the tyranny of standardization? I think you fight. <laughs> you fight the tyranny of standardization almost like you acknowledge that there, there's costs but you you take those costs because the benefits are much greater if you allow teams to be more agile and independent. And the way we've done it, um, you know, we're not quite as big as as you uh, are, but we're getting bigger. Um, I mean, the company looks nothing like when I joined. And what we've done is we've set up the company. So we have Block, but we have four business units currently underneath it. And each business unit has its own team. And there are some functions that we're okay. Um, we're, we're optimizing for innovation and experimentation over standardization. So we don't want like to tell anyone who's doing product, commercial, regulatory that, hey, this is how we've always done it for these other businesses. So this is how you should do it here. 
um, because we want them to see if they can figure something out that, you know, is different and better than what another team figured out. There's other functions that are that need to be consistent. So privacy, like we, we can't have, you know, data being treated wildly different across business units. Um, IP and litigation, it's, you know, litigation has a little of both. You need, you need to be consistent, um, but you also, like with IP and litigation, you have like these centers of excellence where really smart lawyers in those areas want to learn from and work with other really smart lawyers who are doing similar things. And so that's how we've divided what we have as centralized legal um, versus what we call embedded legal. The embedded legal teams are almost as much a part of the business units as they are a part of our team. Um, and, you know, they live and breathe and dream about the customers that they're serving. Um, and, uh, and, and they're really able to dive in super deep on issues so that they can come up with these kind of creative solutions. But isn't it, isn't it cultural also like, like it, some of what you're saying, I think is pretty, pretty significant from a cultural perspective. When, when my last company was bought by MasterCard, that is a massive legal department. The legal, de- the lawyers, 250 lawyers was bigger than our whole company. And, and, but that, that those lawyers were empowered to, to some were embedded, as you said, some were centralized It's a huge organization yet they were culturally empowered to move across business units. The lawyers often took jobs in other business units at MasterCard. That was an intentional cultural norm that was established by the GC on down, like through through the levels. So a big piece of it, Pedro, I think is is the culture piece of what does your team stand for and um and what are their like what are their uh mandates, you know, within the business. How do you interview somebody to is figure that, out? Does that answer it, Pedro? Yeah, yeah, sort of. Yeah, yeah. How, how do you interview a, a lawyer and try to probe at whether they're the creative type or the other type? Or can you develop someone out of one type Great into question. another? How do how do we identify these people and either decide can we fix fix is not the right word, but can know. we develop them or not? Yeah. I think that. Um, it's much easier to find people who already think creatively, but I, I definitely think you can inch people in the direction of being more creative um, and open-minded in terms of interviewing. Like, so I'm, I just take like what issues are on my mind and like, what, what are the hard things that we're working through and ask people like, okay, so here's the set of facts, like, you know, what, what questions do you ask? How do you approach this? Like, what does this remind you of? Where, where are your analogies? Like, I just, because that's how we would work together if they joined. And so it's not hypotheticals where they have to hit, you know, five of the 10 issues that they, you know, I expect them to spot. But you can actually, you know, in 45 minutes, work through kind of a brainstorm on something. And that, and I consider it just like free legal advice um, because, if you're interviewing several people, you you sort of get 80% is overlapped and similar, but then that 20% that's different across people is really valuable. Um, and so like, that's what I do. The other thing that we started doing, and this is more related to making sure that we were um, 
getting bias out of our hiring. And I don't know if you've ever done anything like this, but I, I found it to be really interesting is we do, um, if we're down to like three candidates um, and, and they, it's hard, you know, it's, there's no clear front runner. Um, we take uh, like one of these kind of questions of working through something <laughs> definitely drawn from real life and ask them to do a one or two page max kind of write up. Um, and then we take the names off so that we're looking at like, hey, if you had to present, you know, a, a hard issue in writing, like what does it look like? And it's really powerful to like not know who's submitted what, um, because uh, you know that you can't be biased in sort of your ranking of the written work. Um, and so that's, yeah, just taking like the actual challenges of the day and getting real feedback like you're working with them already is, is my approach to seeing how they think. I think that's really good advice. Like I, I don't think we've done either of those things it, it, nearly as much. We've done them casually, you know, batting around issues on an interview, but like thinking about something in particular and kind of going to that with a couple of the people is a really, is an interesting and thoughtful idea. I want to talk about like, yeah. did you have, do you have any ideas? What do you do? Well, first I'll say this. I love the blind writing sample exercise. I think it's a really powerful tool to reduce bias. I don't think it, you can eliminate it, but I think it definitely will reduce a lot of bias um, and help you think about candidates in ways you might not have if you knew their, who wrote what, right? So that's a really cool tool. I like it. Um, you know, I don't know. I, say, I, it, I know I sound like I don't like the like pedantic lawyer type, but I think they have a really powerful role to play in an organization for like stability's sake. And so when I build teams, and this is, you know, I've done this a few times now, I think more about trying to find the right balance between sort of like free thinkers and and like hyper creative types and then more kind of like process oriented implementation types and just try to understand for the company I work for and the mission that the legal department is on, whether it's grow the company, stabilize the company, maintain the company, whatever we're supposed to be, whatever business goals the legal department is driving besides the traditional legal functions, um, try to strike the balance between like folks who are going to hunker down and make sure that every privacy impact assessment is perfect. I'm not the guy for that job. If you gave me the job of managing the PIA process at a multinational corporation, I would fail. But it's a necessary and important and critical part of the work. And so I would want to hire someone with different skills than me to figure that out. Now, I might be the person to try to think creatively about how to iterate on that process to make it better or faster or more streamlined. But the implementation of it is just not a strength of mine. And so I think you need a blend. Um, the hardest part in the interview process, I think, is determining what you're interviewing for, right? And if you're interviewing for someone to run your, you know, your PIA process, then you need to make sure you're not like bringing in all these creative type candidates that are going to be like massive disruptors or whatever it is. Like that's not what you need to hire for. Um, so like identifying who the candidate is on the other side is really hard. I love the idea of writing samples because they can be very demonstrative of where people's strengths are. 
aside from the substance, like how organized someone's re- response is, um, like how chronologically organized someone's response is, how detail-oriented they are in the areas that they identify with respect to how to address them. Like these are cues that you can pick up on. Whether they got the answer right or wrong doesn't even matter at that point if you're hiring for some type of role that, you know, can sort of be trained for. So um, I wish I had like uh, this yeah. is how I do it no, answer, I but I think it's art. Yeah. No, you, you made me think of something else, which is like, uh, and I'm sure you have this on your teams, too. There's some people who are really comfortable in verbal communication mm. and there's some people who are less comfortable with that and and. Um, or they're just quieter, like, you know, everyone's weighing in. I, we have a lot of big personalities on our team, but then there's one person that I always have to be like, well, what do you think? And they have really amazing insights, but they're not going to volunteer them um, in the in the cacophony of voices. Um, and so, you know, maybe it, it is important to look at different ways of um, assessing talent because not everyone needs to be a loud mouth kind of a super verbally assertive. Um, you, and it's good to have leaders who have different strengths so that people who are on the team also can see themselves in different leaders. Have you ever found the writing sample exercise tricky? Because, Pedro, you gave an example earlier in your career when you wrote this long email and your mentor, Bert, at uh, Oracle, was like, that's way too long. You know, like 65 bullets, nobody's going to read this email. And and yet here you are, uh, you've turned into a pretty good lawyer. So like what it could be a little deceiving, right? Especially when when somebody is at a f- point in their career when they need, as you mentioned, circling back, Savan, like you got that mentorship at eBay. How, like, is does it ever does the writing sample ever sort of throw things off or, or it's obviously a tool in the toolbox of things you're looking at with somebody. But is it ever bitten? Um, I, it's a good point. You have to ask the right question for the role. And this goes back to a little bit about what Pedro was saying, like, what are you hiring for? And so, um, you know, somebody who's going to have to do executive communication, um, for their job, you need to know if they are not ready to do that on day one. Um, but yeah, it doesn't, I think you really need to tailor what you're asking for that, you know, what should be expected by the level of the person that you're bringing in. The long-winded, non-ready-to-write you know, executive communications candidate, or excuse me, yeah, a candidate might not be the right fit for a job where you're sending emails to executive leaders. But boy, if you're hiring a SEV manager to deal with incidents, you want the longest-winded, most detail-oriented writer who ever lived because you're documenting the, you know, the elements of something that went wrong for the purposes of investigating how to fix it and for purposes of determining how to avoid it happening in the future. So, like, while your communication skill might not be great to write the email to Mark Zuckerberg, it might be great to write the SEV report for the incident uh, 10 times a week, right? And so it really matters what you're hiring for and... Uh, in how you evaluate people's writing samples. Yeah. And by the way, I've, I also have my uh, story of writing something totally off the mark. It was like my first memo when I got to the law firm. And it was a stupid, great futures contract. Like, was there a breach or not? The client wanted to know. Um, and I like researched to like to the nth degree, I read every case that was remotely related. I wrote this massive 
like memo that was like, kunk, kunk, here you go. And the, my, you know, my mentoring partner was calls me in his office. He's like, what, what is this? And I was like, well, I gave you all the reasons why there was a breach of contract and all the reasons why there wasn't a breach of contract. Here you go. Like, uh, and, and he was like, that's not what the client wants. The client wants an answer. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, right. Okay. <laughs> and so, you know, it's, I, you know, I, I do believe like you can learn every skill that you need if you're open-minded to feedback. Um, but was I ready to go in-house in that moment? Not close, not even close. Like, you know, so you, it just depends like how senior you're hiring in. Do you need them to already have had those experiences and, and mentorship to get to where they need to be? Or are you hiring, you know, relatively junior into your org and then you want someone who's going to work their ass off and like research, you know, to the and degree some issue um, and then you can help mold them on how to pull out what's important from there. I want to talk about boards for a second because in my experience, the board is not aware of the creative lawyer. <laughs> you know, I think always, and, and you know, your, your board at block is um, big time VCs. And, you know, I, I've been fortunate to have been in one of those boardrooms too, where they're really, big VCs and they differ from other boards with other makeups. And so I was curious from your perspective, how that felt for you and what, what kind of like ways in which you manage those relationships come in and establish legal and kind of in the ways we think about it versus the way maybe a traditional board might think about the lawyer. Yeah. Um, so I was really intimidated by our board. Um, coming in, I was, you know, I thought, and I was totally wrong on what I thought they cared about. Um, like when I was, you know, up for the GC role, uh, you know, and I was coming, I, I was homegrown. I've been at the company for, for some plus years already. Um, and I, I thought, okay, I'm going to prepare for these conversations with board members by identifying, I wrote huge lists of like, everything I've accomplished and everything I'm a subject matter expert in. And, and like, they don't care about that. That's not, they know that like the best in-house lawyers know how to hire really good outside counsel to be subject matter experts. Like there is nobody who's a subject matter expert in everything. Um, and I just didn't get that until, um, you know, through my interviews and then through working with them, I realized all they're looking for is somebody who has really good judgment, who can like identify and mitigate risks and have influence with other executives. And it's that last part that they're, they were trying to figure out as they're talking to me. Um, although I didn't figure it out until I reflected later. I'm like, that was a weird interview. Like, you know, they didn't ask me anything about you know, all the stuff I've done. Um, and so it, they're, they're looking for someone who can be influential. So then it matters what kind of company are you at? And at a company like Block, where innovation um, is so cherished by across the board, uh, you need a lawyer who can um, feel like, you know, they understand what the company is trying to accomplish and, and work in the same way that the other executives are working. Um, and so it, it kind of, it just depends, I think. And I, I don't know if they're, you know, some boards, depending on the business, might be more concerned about 
other things, but our board, it's like, can you identify a risk, not overreact to risk and mitigate it? And the only way to really mitigate it is to have influence with the rest of the folks making decisions that impact the risk levels that we're taking. Love Cash App. And I think it's a great democratizer of like people to people transactions and has just solved a lot of real world problems that existed, particularly amongst underbanked people. I, I see it all the time and I think it's amazing. Um, like what's next for Cash App and what's next for like the for Block as a company on like the commerce? I don't even know if that's the right word, but on the payments and commerce side of the business. And how does Title fit into all of this? This is something I'm super curious about. So what's next and how does Title fit? Yeah. So I, I think there's still, um, so we, on what's next um, around commerce, we acquired Afterpay um, early this year. And the idea there is, is to really connect. So both the buyer experience where you have multiple ways to pay for something, um, including paying in for installments, which is what Afterpay does, and, and then connecting that to the seller side, which is get more buyers who can come and, um, you know, find me the buyers. And so we have this two sides of the network thing going on that could be really powerful. And I'm, I'm very, very excited to see as we can just continue to iterate on what that looks like. I think that the other thing that um, we're exploring, not just through Cash App, but um, we have a new business unit called TBD, which is um, focused on decentralized finance. It's what other problems can we solve, like, you know, where money is moving and it's slow and it's expensive and that there's limited access. Um, so thinking about sending money across borders, remittances, it's a ridiculous process. And we have Bitcoin that makes should be able to make that go away in terms of expense and time. Um, so they're exploring things like that of using a decentralized network and, and allowing people to move money more freely. Um, there's a lot of complicated things that you have to solve in order to do that, including, you know, uh, how do you verify identity? So now we need a decentralized identity um, that you as a customer can decide not, you know, like not, you know, I don't want to talk crap about Facebook, but companies like Facebook or Google right now kind of hold all of your information. They know a lot about you. Like what happens if we can flip that and give the power back to the consumer where they decide when they want to share their identi identity and their credentials? Um, and so they're very, very hard problems to solve. I'm not saying like we've solved them, but those are the types of things that we're looking at to prepare for the next, like the future of, of money movement um, and what, what's possible there, where we can maybe get away from big companies or banks kind of controlling who plays and who can't play. Um, so I, that, that gets me very excited as well. Did you have follow-up, Pedro, in your, in your <laughs> how does title how does, how does title fit into it? Yeah. How does Tidal fit into all of it? Yeah. I'm, and by the way, I'm a huge fan of Tidal yeah. as well. Um, shout out to Jay-Z and Beyonce. But like, um, how does it all fit into the broader strategy? I'm just curious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Tidal is, so it's music streaming, but that's the consumer side. But more importantly, it's artist services. Mm. So 
like title tries to make sure that the way that we're paying artists for um, streams of their music is you know better and more fair than what other streaming services are doing. Um, but that's just like the tip of that's kind of current state. But there's a whole bunch of other stuff. Artists are really like small businesses, um, and we want to get to a place in the future where an artist can solely live on their art and get paid for their art and not have to have like these side jobs to pay the rent. And so um, just trying to crack the nut of like, what can we provide to artists in terms of ways that they can build their businesses um, that, that can be useful the way that we've helped sellers develop their businesses on the square side. So it's not that they all connect like automatically together. It's like, it's just um, kind of philosophically, we're trying to solve similar problems in, in different areas. And artists are, have different needs than, you know, a coffee shop or, you know, a stadium, which is what Square is looking at serving. So um, really having a team that's very focused on what artists need, I think, um, can be really powerful. But we don't have the answers yet. Like we're still early days on that too. So this is why... Yeah, this is why you're there for almost 10 years to me. Like if I'm if I'm sitting on the outside looking in, I'm like, well, all of the things you just described were were not even a notion, you know, in the mind of the company 6 years ago, 8 years ago, uh the 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 metamorphosis that can happen in a company um at that scale is truly <laughs> mind-blowing and probably keeps you so logged in and interested and so maybe as the final final sort of topic like is that is am, am i right on that and is that what drives you kind of forward in in thinking about the next you know series of i think in our prep we called it seasons like the next season of the business like i've never there's so many different seasons going on at this company that is that are, are we right in how we're thinking about that yeah, no, totally. It's, um, <clears throat> yeah, the early season, it was like, just survive, right? <clears throat> Don't go out of business. We had one product, it was this little reader that plugged into your phone or your iPad. Um, and it was, you know, just kind of live to fight another day and try to develop that business. And um, now, also personally, it was like, it's just survive so that I can thrive, like prove myself. Um, tackle all the I call it running towards piles of shit like that's how I approached my whole career like just run towards the messiest nastiest most complicated thing that no one wants to touch with a 10-foot pole um, and, and it was it was very much about like I'm gonna come fix something um, that was why I went to ad tech because <laughs> yeah yeah totally um, and then now it's like it's uh, my role is so different and the company doesn't look anything like it did before. Um, and so now it's like fostering that innovative spirit, even as we're getting bigger and we need to deal with scaling challenges and things like that. Um, and I'm not proving myself so much anymore. I'm like developing the next, you know, strong leaders and GCs. Um, whether they're, you know, in our company or they take GC roles outside, like that's, it's all about kind of making sure everyone has a path to, to really shine and, and own their areas. Um, and so 
yeah, it's just like, I feel like I've had 10 jobs and, um, in nine plus years. So yeah, it's, it, it's a, it is a yeah, different season. What an awesome sure. opportunity. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for talking. My pleasure. I mean this, it's I mean this really very fun. sincerely, like I admire the company you work for quite a bit. And, uh, I think you've done a lot to democratize finance and it sounds like you've got similar plans for artists and these are you know finance for underserved people and facilitating artists to create art are amazing missions and i'm happy to hear that you guys are passionate about both and ho looking you know kind of watching from the cheap seats what you do and and admiring and mm -hmm. and, and wishing you the best i'm fucking pumped about what you guys are doing oh thank you before I go, thank you so much just for taking the time to chat. Uh, it's always fun to talk to other folks in, in the industry and just learn from your experiences. I so I really appreciate it. It was our pleasure. Thanks, Thanks for, for hanging out for with this. us. It was really fun. Yeah.